0: Grace, mercy, and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ, St. Mark Lutheran Church in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, from the members of the Campus Ministry Committee. And I bring you the gospel in the name of our Lord Jesus. Have you ever faced, betrayal, to be hurt, not just by anybody that might hurt you, a complete stranger, someone maybe you would expect it from, but to be hurt by someone that you trust, that you thought you were friends with, that you thought had your best interest in mind, and instead they turn on you. Over the last couple of years, um, people who keep track of this sort of thing have noticed that there has been a massive decrease across our institutions of higher learning, colleges and universities, massive decrease in enrollment of undergraduates. The New York Times um, article reported that well over a million Students under what would usually be expected across our nation in their universities are not there. And while there are probably a lot of reasons that come together to contribute to that shortfall in overall enrollment, one that this article focused on was especially the concept of institutional betrayal. Institutional betrayal is something where the the institution at large, in this case the the college, the university, does something to greatly impede upon the trust, upon the well-being, upon the safety of those who would otherwise depend on it. People who are about to attend college Usually put a lot of time, a lot of thinking into their decision as to not only whether to attend college or not versus going right into the workforce or other options they may have, but into which institution in particular they choose. What are the offerings that they have? What are the major majors or major I I might be interested in pursuing? What opportunities will they give me after graduation? What sort of experience on campus will I get during my my campus and academic life there? And when we talk about institutional betrayal, a a lot of things that, that come to the the forefront are, are maybe students who are getting there on campus and they're really getting less than the college experience that they had expected and hoped for. Maybe rules that they see as, as far too restrictive of, of what they had expected. Or, or on the other hand, maybe in some cases, students who had, who had expected a, a degree of level of safety or, or certain rules and, um, you know, marks that the institution sets forth and they're not really strictly enforcing it as well as maybe the student might like. Or or in a completely different respect, maybe an institution that denies culpability or even any sort of responsibility or concern about uh, perhaps an assault that takes place on campus or, or certain inve- uh, events of, of bullying, of hazing, or that sort of thing erodes the trust in the institution Betrayal that is felt by those who who had come to depend on it. If you want to talk about a young man who was greatly affected by institutional betrayal, look no further than the first reading from Genesis 45 today in Joseph. We see him a lot later, probably some 12 or so years later, a man of, what, 30, 32 33 years old, who looks back on his life at a time when he went away to a foreign place, a foreign situation for a different sort of education that he hadn't really signed up for in the first place. And no, it wasn't some institution of higher learning that had betrayed him. It was no other institution than his own family, his brothers who who reviled him, who despised him as the preferred son and the favored son of their father Jacob, who gave him all the advantages, all the preferential treatment, all the love that could be easily doled out among 12 sons, but seemed to be reserved only for Joseph. And so great was this spite and disdain for their brother from a different mother that they saw him coming one day to check up on them and said, you know, let's throw him in the cistern and as a kind of a holding cell and figure out what to do with him. They decided not to kill him because they were such generous brothers. And at the behest of Judah said, well, here are some traders from, uh, you know, some Ishmaelites heading to Egypt. Why don't we just sell them to you know, these slave traders, and he'll head down to Egypt. We'll never have to see or hear from him again, and, and we don't have blood on our hands that way. So win-win. And that's what happened. Sold as a slave into Egypt, Sold as a young man, about 17 years old, into a foreign land, into a completely distinct and different sort of situation, away from his home, away from all the support he would have had, away from the people who, who had brought him up to know and call on the Lord and now brought into this, this pagan nation. And for that matter, the most powerful nation on the earth, sold as a slave to Potiphar, high-ranking official there. And yet through all of it, we see that Joseph did receive an education of sorts with with a, with a retrospection that i think you only get with the ability of of many years and a great amount of wisdom that the lord can give to see no there was a a proper education he was receiving all along and more to the point a proper educator and we focus this morning on see where the right education can get you, or the right educator. This educator saw what lay ahead for Joseph, certainly, though Joseph could never see that. One thing that, that Old Testament narrative does very little of, it's not really the kind of the Hebrew style, is to get into the what lies behind the actions. It, it's good at just laying out the narrative. Here's the action, here's the facts, here's what took place. It doesn't dwell on so much the character building in the sense of what is going through their minds, what are they wrestling over, what are they struggling with. It really leads the reader to to see the action of the narrative and fill in the blanks and kind of wrestle with that for yourself. You don't get a lot of Joseph with all these downturns, with all the things that could go wrong, going not only wrong, but even worse than expected. You don't see how he wrestles. You don't get into the details of how he struggles, but we ask ourselves, how could he not? Not only sold in slavery by his brothers, sold to this foreign land, he ends up still able to do faithful work as a trusted servant in the house of Potiphar, such that he even earns the trust of his master to the point where his master says, you know what, you're in charge of the whole household, Joseph. Um, I trust you that much and you're that efficient. Um you take care of it, and even in that, where Joseph might have easily become embittered as a slave and said, "I'm not down for this. My my family forsook me. Has the Lord forsaken me too?" Even, but then another curveball is thrown, and his master Potiphar's wife kind of comes on to him, and he, a young man, who has every excuse to say, "Well, give in to this. What's the big deal?" resists, says, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And she turns on him, makes up a lie, and says, he assault, he tried to assault me. Now Joseph gets thrown in prison. And he's left to rot there for two years, two years. And even, even as it gets worse from there, he, he ends up with a couple of cellmates, you know, most notably the chief cupbearer of Pharaoh. And he notices one day, something was troubling him and he had this his, this dream that he just couldn't get over and Joseph was able to tell him, what's your dream? And And by the Lord's power to say, oh, your dream means that in three days you're going to be lifted up by Pharaoh and reinstated to your position. Please remember me when that happens. Well, all of it happened and Joseph said, except the cupbearer says, well, maybe I won't bring it up just yet. And the convenient time becomes two years later. When Pharaoh finally has his dream, every reason to become embittered, every reason to hang it up, every reason to despise and hold the grudge against his brothers, every reason to toss up his hands and say, what good does it do me to follow the Lord, to live according to his word? Why should I still call on the name of the Lord or put my trust in him? Look where it's gotten me. Slavery and the depths of despair in this prison cell. Joseph had to probably wonder as a young man, where is it all going? What's the point of it all? But the great educator who knew it all saw the big picture. And he knew all along what lay ahead for Joseph. See, to us, the Lord gives the present time as a gift, a blessing to serve him, to call on his name, and to follow and obey his commands as we live in this world. He gives us the past to look back on, to learn from, to reflect upon, and to repent of when necessary. But the future is left only to the Lord, and I think that's a good thing. The Lord in his wisdom knows, I don't think you want to know your future. You wouldn't like it, and you would run terrified from it, but I see the big picture And I have the education and the training in store for you that's known only to me, and I will refine you through it. Put another way, if you want to make the Lord laugh, tell him your plans that you have for your life and your future. Or as my professor in college used to say, you have no idea how much good, excellent advice I've given to the Lord over the years, And he hasn't taken any of it. So it would be with Joseph. Who would have chalked it up to this? But through all of this, the Lord had his dear child, his son Joseph, by faith, that is, situated perfectly, to arise and ascend to this position of authority that the Lord had great plans for, And we'll see what a significant position that would be when Joseph, the time comes, is able by the Lord to interpret this dream that is disturbing Pharaoh of all people and able to tell him, you know, your dream means there's going to be seven years of incredible plenty and bounty in this nation, and it's going to be followed up by seven terrible years of famine. So bad that you're not even going to remember the seven good years. Pharaoh, if I may should designate a wise person to be in charge of this and store up the grain from the bounteous years to use during the lean years. Pharaoh says, you're the guy. Congratulations. Joseph, from the, the depths of the prison cell, a slave in Egypt, now ascends to the, next to the throne of Pharaoh in Egypt, second ranking in the most powerful nation on earth with all this authority and power that is given to him. The Lord saw it all from beginning to end, had a plan not only for Joseph, but, but for a lot, much larger um, purpose that he had. As we see Joseph now, years later, looking back on this, reflecting on this, we see a man who, who's very different, a man who has been trained, who has been refined, who has been matured through all of this, And though we don't see really a lot of grumbling and complaining, it doesn't really get into that whether he did or not. But you see a man who is able to look back with some retrospection and say, the Lord had a good purpose for this. Did you catch it in the reading? Three times Joseph mentions when he reveals himself to his brothers, God sent me here. The Lord sent me ahead of you. So this comes about when Joseph, you know, he's in the midst of these seven years of famine. And it's so widespread, not just to Egypt, but to the whole ancient Near East, including the land of Canaan and his own family. And so Joseph's brothers now are sent by Jacob. They said, the word is there's still some grain and food you can get, you know, in Egypt. Why don't you go down there? And Joseph is the one they run into. And he doesn't reveal himself the first time. He sends him back. He keeps a prisoner behind until they bring the other preferred son, Benjamin, Joseph's brother, from from Rachel. And it's finally, after he can't take it anymore, that he sees maybe there has been some repentance, some change in heart among the brothers. He shows himself, makes himself known, and that's right where the reading picks up. And he says, you know, don't kick yourself, don't trouble yourself, don't be afraid. What will that be like? I'm Joseph, I'm your brother. We thought we were rid of you. Oh, it's truly going to come down upon us. And he shows them mercy instead. He shows them grace. He shows them forgiveness. He reassures them. And he says, God sent me ahead of you. God sent me here. He's placed me in the perfect position just for this time so that you may be cared for. Go and tell my father, our father, that that I am still alive, that I am high-ranking in Egypt, that you're going to be taken care of, because the Lord has deliverance for you and our family to live here in Goshen by me. Deliverance is really the name of the whole plan, the name of the whole story. On a couple of levels, I think we see Christ in this account. First of all, we see Christ, I think, in the person of Joseph, who, more than anybody else in the book of Genesis, is as much a Christ-like figure as we see a man who goes from a favored position down to the depths of of humiliation and is humbled completely, who is now ascended and raised up to, to a very high position of authority, who is exalted and who is put in this position specifically for the work of delivering people and saving many lives. That's the Lord's doing. That was the Lord's plan, and we see in Joseph a, a reflection of a, a descendant of this family of Joseph's who would come many, many, many hundreds of years later in the person of Jesus Christ, who would be God's chosen son. And deliverance would be the one thing on Jesus' mind. Not deliverance from poverty or starvation. Not deliverance from famine, but deliverance from damnation. Deliverance for a whole world of people who are alienated from God, whom the Lord created and blessed with this world that that they might know him and love him and call on him and be called children of God. And this world turns on him and this world rejects him. And they set themselves up against their God and creator as an enemy, as hostile, as dead and despising him. And we see this with their treatment of the Lord Jesus, don't we? John, the evangelist, as he reflects on it in his uh, opening chapter of his gospel account, he talks about the eternal word. Jesus made flesh. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And he has this to say, He came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. And it goes from there all the way to the rejection, despisal, leaving the people who should know the best, Israel and, and the Jewish leaders who instead of receiving him and directing, here's the Christ, here's the Savior, nail him to a cross. I sometimes wonder, wouldn't I have done it differently if I lived at that time? To be honest, sometimes I'm not so sure I would have. Might have been right alongside there in the mob, might have been the soldier just doing my duty, carrying out the work I was entrusted, nailing this man to the cross. But Jesus gave his life for a world of sinners. He gave his life to those who rejected him and despised him and scorned him and would have nothing to do with him so that you might be delivered from all sin, from death, from the power of the devil, with his own holy precious blood and his innocent suffering and death that you might be his own and live under him in his kingdom. You already see kind of a little bit of a pattern of this, I think, in Genesis. But it affects directly Christ. Joseph has the understanding at this point in his spiritual training and education that the Lord positioned me here for a reason. Not just the saving of many lives, that is, all these nations and peoples in Egypt and around Egypt, but specifically for the family of the promise. This is kind of what Genesis is and the whole Old Testament. The moment God said, I'm going to send a Savior who's going to crush the serpent's head, and he's going to come as the offspring of the woman, you have a bloodline and a human ancestry of the Son of God and the Savior, traced from Adam and Eve through the patriarchs all the way to King David until the fullness of time when he's born of the Virgin after being conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus our Savior. So anything that messes with that bloodline and that family tree and that heritage in the Old Testament brings all of salvation history into potential disaster for all the world. Joseph was there not only to save his brothers from starvation, his father, but to preserve that family line and to play his tiny little part in salvation history as the Lord had positioned him right there. Otherwise, Joseph said, you will come to ruin, but I will bring you all down here, and you will be delivered and provided for. The other Christ-like thing we see of Joseph is the attitude that he carries, which could have easily been grudge-holding, despisal, rejection, retribution, and revenge against his brothers. He reassures them again and again. He shows mercy. He forgives. He makes it known. He throws his arms around his brother. He kisses the others. He says, it's okay, and don't argue on the way. Bring dad down. You all come here. I will provide for you. Even after Jacob dies later in in chapter 50, Joseph reassures him again because still his brothers are thinking, he's just been waiting. He's been buttering us up. He's been waiting till dad is dead, and now he's going to get his revenge. Joseph says, it's okay. I really do forgive you. You intended to harm me, he said, but God intended this for good to do what is now being accomplished, the saving of many lives. It sounds a lot like someone who had come from this family tree that we heard in the gospel. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The Lord had placed his specially trained child Joseph here in this position to reflect this grace, to show this forgiveness, an uncommon thing in this world that comes from God alone. You, my brothers and sisters, are recipients of this mercy. You are recipients of this grace. You are a congregation of believers stationed here in this dying world, in the midst of this city and this town, in the shadow of this campus in front of you and the Lord has placed you where he has for a reason. Why? I can't give you those answers right now. For what purpose? Only the Lord knows and maybe through many years of retrospection looking back may we come to understand but all the same he's placed you where you are among the people that you have coffee with that you go to dinner with among the friends that you have among the family you're in, among the roommates that you have, the people in your class. It's for a reason. There's an education through the gospel that the Lord gives to each and every one of us. The writer instructor is our Heavenly Father and his powerful work of the gospel of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And you and I are recipients of it all. Though we may see a a downturn currently of undergraduates in our institutions of higher learning, you know as well as I do it's still a ripe field. Many in this world, many who do not know the Lord, and yet your sons and daughters, or you yourselves are situated there among them, with them, in their living rooms, in their dorm rooms, in their classrooms. Continue this work. Brothers and sisters of campus ministry, see the fields that are ripe, and not only in campus ministry, but in your own lives. Be the bearers of Christ to this dying world to bring the deliverance that Jesus has brought to the whole world, the word of forgiveness, the message of life and peace and salvation. In this way, we see what an education, the great educator our Lord gives us. Even as you do that, pray for us as we do this work in the Midwest, your brothers and sisters throughout the synod, we do this work throughout the world, through our missionaries. It is the one church and God's put you in this little corner for a reason. See why that is. Receive this education and may the Lord bless us all to that end. Amen.